0: You know, one time a businessman asked a pastor a question and it was this, what is the most important question someone in society needs to have answered? The pastor said that was easy. Who is God? You see, the critical issue under this question is uh, it helps us to understand God's identity, to understand his nature, his personality, and his character, which are all brought into question today. The businessman says, good answer. How about a second one? I got a second question for you. He says, okay, what is it? What is the most important question a Christian needs to have answered? The pastor's response was, that's easy as well. It's who is God the Father? You see, God the Father, there is a famine in the understanding and knowledge of who God the Father is. And there is a lot talked about in the church about who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is. We sing songs about them. We write books on them, but they reveal the very nature and will and purpose of who the Father is. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to discover who is God the Father and what is God the Father like. And the very nature of Jesus and the Holy Spirit reveal the very nature of God the Father because they are the same. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to unpack this. And so for those of you who are type A and you want to know where I'm going, uh, the first one is, who is God the Father? That's the question we're going to answer. And the second one is, what is God the Father like? And we're going to unpack that this morning. But first, who is God the Father? Almost all religions believe in a God. Some believe that there are many gods, and some believe that there is one God. Some believe that, uh, like, a Greek philosophy type God where he's up there and he's distant and sometimes you can know him, sometimes you can't know him. Sometimes he's got a short fuse. Uh, Some believe in multiple gods such as uh, the sun God, the moon God, the earth God, uh, and all of these different types. Some believe in man-made gods and they place gods like their job or their hobby or their family or their neighbors uh, as a God in their life. But the question becomes is, What do we as Jesus followers, as Christians believe who God is and how many gods are there? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Deuteronomy six, four, this was called the great Shema. The nation of Israel would recite this every single day to remind them of who their God was says this, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we as Jesus followers, we as Christians believe that there is one God. We don't believe in many gods. We believe that there is one God. So who is God? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we won't turn there. It says, God is talking to himself and it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we see this idea of this plurality through words like us and are. And so we understand that yes, there's one God, but there's this plural nature to who God is. So the question then becomes is who is he? And and who is us and are referring to? John chapter six, verse 27 tells us who the first person is that that's referring to. You could turn there in your Bible. And if you don't want to turn there, it will be up on the screen behind me. Verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. So the first person that is referred to as God is God, the father. God, the father is a member of the Godhead. Turn with me to the left in your Bible, just a few pages to John chapter one, verse one, which says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what we see here is there's the second person who is with God. He's with him from the very beginning, before the beginning began, and it's this idea of the word. And the word is actually called God here in verse one. So it's really important to understand who is the word referring to. Verse 14 brings a little clarification for us says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this tells us that the second person who is called God is the son. His name is Jesus. So the father is called God, the son is called God. Look with me at one other passage in Acts chapter five, verses one through four, where we see the third person in the scriptures who is called God. Acts chapter five, verse one says this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Pay attention to that. Underline it, circle it, think about it. And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain uh, your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So this is the third person that is referred to as God and is used interchangeably between Holy Spirit and God. So now we get to see that the Father is God The Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And what we come to is the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you're like, okay, Ian, this is pretty heady. This is pretty theological. My head is starting to hurt. Here is a definition to try and hopefully uh, make your head hurt a little less and we can be able to define it this way. Wayne Grudem says it this way. God eternally exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person is fully God, there is only one God. Okay, this is an exclusively Christian doctrine known as the Trinity, where we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, but there is only one God. Three persons, one God, all of them are fully God. This is, again, an exclusive doctrine uh, to the Christian faith. Okay, Hopefully this will help simplify it a little bit more for you. There's three things you should know about the Trinity. Number one, they're all equal. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They are all equal together. Number two, they're all unified. They're one in their purpose, in their will, and in their character. We see the unification of their purpose and will in creation and their desire to create. We see it in their uh, unification of their will to uh, redeem you and I, to bias into adoption to the Father. Uh, But we also see them unified in their character, that they have the same character. All of them are eternal. From eternity past to eternity present and to eternity future, they all three are eternal. All three of them are infinite right so they're not bound by any time or limits but they're infinitely able to do all these things they're all of them are all powerful they have the ability to bring life they have the ability to take life they have the ability to create and they have the ability to take away all of them are all knowing all of them have this ability to know what happened in eternity past and they know what's going to happen in eternity future. And they all know what is going on in our thought patterns right here and right now. All of them are holy, meaning all of them are set apart morally, they're perfect. There's no sin in them, there's no contemplation of sin, there's no desire to sin. Uh, They are morally perfect, they are holy. Every single one of them are righteous meaning that they have to judge sin, that they have set up a law and they have to fulfill that law because they would not be righteous if they didn't. And which means that the wages of sin is death. And so they have to judge sin. But all of them are loving also at the same time because all of them go, I don't want you to live in your sin. I want to adopt you out of your sin. And therefore I am going to redeem you. You see, they are all equal. They are all unified. And then number three, They're all distinct. There are three different persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all distinct individuals, but they all have unique roles in the role of the Trinity. Right, so we're, we're gonna zoom into today is the role of the Father in the Trinity because that's what we're talking about is in God the Father. In the weeks to come, we're gonna unpack Jesus and we're gonna unpack the Holy Spirit. So I don't wanna rob from Steve in the weeks to come. I wanna specifically focus in on the role of the Father in the Trinity. And his role is to will it, to plan it, he is the visionary behind all of it, right? He's come up with this vision, he's come up with this plan and he's going to carry it out into completion. And we see this in two ways. One, in the creation account. In Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So God, the father has this plan and this vision to create the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the birds, the plants, the animals, and then us as humans. This was all in the vision and plan of the Father. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 19, verses one through three, where we see this same idea pictured. Psalm 19, verses one through three says, "'Heavens declare the glory of God, "'and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. "'Day to day pours out speech, "'and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out from all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, right? The very heavens and sky declare the vision of God, the plan of God, the father, and you see all of those things displayed. And what you see in verse two is when he talks about being poured out, this idea is is this bubbling up everywhere you go. So this week, as you're going home today, or this week, as you're driving around, start identifying only the things that God the Father could create. And what you will see is the very plan of God bubbling up around. You'll see the very vision of God bubbling up all around. And as you start identifying only the things that God could create, it will lift your spirit and cause you to worship and acknowledge him. You see, the role of the Father in the Trinity was to will it, to plan it, and to be the visionary behind it. But the second thing that we see this in is his plan to adopt us in Galatians chapter four. Galatians four, verses one through four says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we are children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. What do you see here? The very purpose, plan, and vision of the father from the very beginning, when sin entered into this world, he had a plan to redeem us, to adopt us out of the slavery of sin. And it is seen by him at the perfect time, sending forth his son. And what you begin to see is at that perfect time, the sovereignty of God unfold throughout humanity, throughout the period of time that God's vision and God's plan was to adopt you and to adopt me. And the question then becomes is if this is God's sovereign plan is to adopt you, why are you resisting that type of adoption? because some of us in here have been running from the father. Some of us do not trust the father. Some of us do not want to accept the father's free gift for our salvation through his son. And we're, we're uh, neglecting it, we're suppressing it, we're not desiring it. And I'm calling you today to believe in it and allow that adoption to take place. For others of us, you have believed in the adoption of Christ for your salvation, but we're hindered and we're not allowing the plan and the purpose of the Father to unfold in our lives. We're holding back our finances. We're holding back our kids. We're holding back our neighborhoods. And God wants to unfold his kingdom through a plan and a purpose for your life and through my life to bring us back in to this will that he has for you and I. You see, these are the very natures of who our Father is, and this is His character. But for some of us, we go, "Well, we can't trust the Father. I don't know who the Father is. Uh, He's a stranger to me." Well, here, here is a definition for who the God the Father is. God is not a force or a principle or simply a higher power, as some would say. He has instead revealed Himself as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians one three says. You see, the revelation of God the Father has roots in the Old Testament. It was always national, it was never personal, right? So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse six, it says, God is the father of Israel. In Hosea 11, one through four, it says, the prophet of Hosea spoke of God as the father carrying Israel as his child. But as we usher in the New Testament, as Jesus comes onto the scene, we see the personal nature of our heavenly father. So he's not just the father of a nation, he becomes the father of an individual. We see over 150 times in the first three gospels, Jesus refers to the father as his father. And so the question then becomes is if he is Jesus's father, do we desire to make him our father? And the question then arises is, what is this type of father like? And that's what I wanna unpack with us for the rest of our time this morning is what is God the Father like? Because if I'm going to trust him, I need to know what he's like. I need to know his characteristics. I need to see that characteristics proven over time. And that may be a question that you have asked, or maybe you, that's one of the reasons why you refuse to trust him. And it's, a, it's an okay question to ask. Philip asked it, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, when he said, Lord, show us the Father that we, that will be enough for us. Jesus' response was, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What he's saying here is we're of the same nature. We have the same characteristics. So who I am is a reflection of who the Father is. The problem is oftentimes we look at our heavenly Father through the lens of how we view our earthly Father. And for some of us, our earthly Father eclipses who our heavenly father is. You see our heavenly father is large, but our earthly father is near. And so as we unpack who our heavenly father is, I wanna uh, contrast some of the wrong views of who our heavenly father is by using the analogy of wrong views of our earthly father. And that will teach us what God the father is like as we unpack this. So the first one is this, that we have no father. That we have no father. This view says, I have no father, he doesn't exist. And this is the view that an atheist would hold. That I don't have a father, he doesn't exist. And the problem with that is in the human dimension, uh, it leaves us feeling like we're an orphan. And some of you grew up without a dad. Some of you grew up and he left when, he, when you were young. He uh, passed away when you were young and, and you don't have a father. One little boy I talked to, uh, he doesn't have a father. His uh, mom had in vitro and she had been hurt by so many men and so she wanted to have a baby and so she went off and did it by herself. And other than having a sperm donor as a father, he does not have a dad. And the problem with this type of view, when we view the fact that we don't have a heavenly father is it leaves us with an orphan spirit. It, the orphan spirit leaves us either lonely or needy or a combination of the both. Lonely in the sense we were created to give and receive love from our earthly father. And because we haven't received that, we're constantly trying to find a relationship to replace that and to fix that and to put that into place. For others of us, we've grown up feeling needy. So we're looking for that affirmation. We're looking for that, I'm proud of you. Uh, we're looking for the, uh, I, I'm supporting you, I'm with you. And because we're not getting it, we're trying to find it in a career so that our employees or those that we work with say, I'm applauding you, you're doing a good job. Or it's a combination of both. Jesus says it this way, I will not leave you as orphans. He has given us a heavenly father and we believe that we have a heavenly father. 1 Corinthians chapter eight, verse six says this. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom all things and from whom we exist. We believe that we have a heavenly father, that we are not left as orphans, that he is there to protect us, guide us, and care for us. David uh, in the Old Testament says in Psalm 68 verse five that our heavenly father is a father to the fatherless. This is the type of heavenly father that we have. Number two, the second wrong view of God the father is we have an absent father, We have an absent father. This view says I may or may not have a father. He's not looking for me and I'm not looking for him. This is the agnostic's view of who God the father is. For some of you, your earthly father walked out on you when you were a teenager or when you were young and he was never there to protect you, guide you or give you wisdom. You see, our earthly father may have walked out on us but we believe that our heavenly father seeks after us right? Our heavenly father doesn't walk out on us. He seeks after us. That's why Jesus says this, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. We see this analogy in the parable of the lost sheep in uh, Matthew chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If not, we'll have it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. "'See that you do not despise one of these little ones, "'for I tell you that in heaven "'there's an angel always see the face of my Father "'who is in heaven. "'What do you think? "'If a man has a hundred sheep "'and one of them has gone astray, "'does he not leave the 99 on the mountain "'and go and search for the one that went astray?' And if he finds it, truly I say it to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, right? Our heavenly father is pictured as the shepherd who cares about us, who has a relationship with us. Each one of these shepherds would know their sheep by name. They would know the types of baths that they would say. And as this protective father, shepherd, begins to count his sheep. He recognizes that there's 99 and he's missing one. And he leaves the 99, not because he doesn't care about the 99, but because he realizes that there's safety and security in numbers. And he goes after the one that is lonely and lost. He seeks after that one because he knows that there's a thief who could steal him or a beast who could destroy him. And so he goes off of them and he's, as a loving father, he comes to draw them back because he's seeking and to save that lost sheep. Maybe you are here this morning and you are a lost sheep. Maybe you're tuning into our live stream and you are an example of a lost sheep that maybe somebody sent you this live stream and you are tuning in for the first time and you don't have a loving father who is present, who is seeking after you. And today your heavenly father is desiring to seek after you and have you accept him into his fold, accept him into his herd. And he's calling you to come back. Number three. So the third wrong view of the father. The first one was we have no father. The second one was we have an absent father. Number three, we have a distant father. This is the view that says I have a father, but he's far away or is too busy for me. See, this is the deist view of the father, where he's just too busy. Maybe he was physically present, but he was too busy with work and the work was too stressful and so he was emotionally removed. Maybe he prioritized his hobbies over you. And so uh, he uh, would never be present. He would never ask you. He would never emotionally connect with you. This is an example of a distant father. And for some of you, you had this type of dad where he was not emotionally connecting. He was not asking you questions. He was not wanting to get to know your life. He was far off. But we believe that God the Father is near to us and makes time for us, right? He's not a distant Father. He is a near Father. And we see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse nine. When Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray, he says this, our Father... Right? He could have said, My Father. He could have said, Jesus' Father. Or he could have said, The Holy Spirit's Father. But he uses this inclusive term to draw his followers closer to the heart of the Father, and the Father draws in to him. This idea of our Father is this paternal love and care for us. This same idea is also carried off in the term, Abba Father where we see that uh, the father makes time for Jesus in one of his greatest forms of stressful times in his life. Look with me at Mark chapter 14, two books to the left. Mark chapter 14, Jesus is pending the cross. He's in a garden called Gethsemane. He's got three of his followers with him. And this is what it says in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, "'My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch.' And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, "'Abba, Father,' this enduring term, this paternal love that the Father has for him that draws him near. "'All things are possible for you. "'Remove this cup from me.' yet not what I will, but your will be done." Not what I will, but your will be done, right? Because the father had a connection with the son, the son then responds to that intimate connection and surrenders his will to the father to carry out the plan of redemption, to adopt you and to adopt me uh, from our sins and into the family of God. But you see, this is not just limited to God the father, and God, the son, this is actually an extension into uh, God, the father's relationship with us. In Romans chapter eight, verse 14, it says this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, father. Right? So it's not just an intimate, near relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That's offered to you and I as we submit ourselves to the, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why? Because we have a part of God's family. We've been adopted into his family, making him our father. So last week at Ecclesia, we had about 180 kids from nursery through fifth grade here over two gatherings. Of those 180 kids, three of them called me dad. Two boys and one little girl. Now, as their father, I can pick up the tone of their voice as many kids are running around here after a gathering, yelling, dad, 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 dad. I can pick up which ones are my kids. Why? Because they're a part of my family. I know their voice and I know them. But I'm limited to those three. Whereas God the Father is infinite and he's not limited to those three. He knows every single one of them and knows the tone of their voice and every single one of them that calls him dad and father right? So we don't have a distant father. We believe that we have a God, the father who is near to us and makes time for us. Number four, number four, we have a permissive father. This is the fourth wrong view. This is the view that says, my dad will give me what I want, when I want, and all I want, right? This is the father who is all relationship, no law. So he's just there to make you happy and uh, to do whatever you want him to do so that you can be happy, And for some of you, you grew up with this type of father. He gave you what you want, when you want, and how you wanted. Uh, And he was this permissive father, like almost like a genie in a bottle and you could just rub it and then you were given whatever that would work. My question for you is how well did that work out for you? There's probably some hurts and some pains that you wish you did not have in your life. But you see, we believe that God the Father lovingly corrects us. We believe that God the Father lovingly corrects us. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, verse five. "'And have you forgotten the exhortation "'that addresses you as sons? "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. "'Not be weary when removed by him, "'for the Lord disciplines the one he loves "'and chastise every son whom he has received. "'It is for the discipline that you have to endure, "'God is treating you as sons. "'For what son is there whom his father does not discipline?' If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then all are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirit and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for our good that we might share in his holiness, right? That's the difference there. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, right? God the Father disciplines those of us he calls his children because he wants to produce something in us. He doesn't just give us what we always want because there's something that he wants to give us that's greater than that and something that we need. My, uh, my oldest uh, has his birthday in December, So December 10th is his birthday and then you got Christmas. So December to him is like the best month in the entire year. November 1st rolls around and he starts building his list of everything that he wants and having his mom write it all down. By the time December 1st rolls around, we start talking to him so we don't have a massive meltdown about he's not gonna get everything he wants and everything on that list is not going to take place. And that he's gonna also get some things that he needs that he may not always want. Well, the week of Christmas rolls around and there's this big box, right? That he discovers that morning when he walks out. And that week, every day he's like, dad, can I open that present? Maybe it's a flat screen TV for my room. I'm like, dude, you're five, no way. Dad, maybe it's a really big toy that I really, really need. I really, really want it. Can I open it? No, goes to his mom the next day. Mom, can I open that? No, Christmas Eve rolls around, dad. I know you're gonna be gone all day for Christmas Eve, but can I just open one present? No, buddy, no. Wait till tomorrow, right? We're teaching him self-control here. So Christmas morning rolls around. He opens, he pulls out this box. It's big, it's flat. And he begins to rip the paper off in anticipation. Is it a TV? Is it a big toy? And he opens the box and guess what's in it? A snow coat. And he looks at his mom in devastation and looks at me, drops it, and then turns around and walks away. (laughs) And at that moment, he realized that he's not going to get everything he wants. And sometimes he's going to get what he needs. And he didn't ask for that need, but we knew he needed it because guess what happened the very next day? It snowed. snowed. (laughs) And so at 7 a.m., guess what the first words were out of his mouth? Dad, where's my snow coat? Right? Our heavenly father doesn't just give us everything that we want, he gives us things that we need because he loves us and he knows what we need. Last but not least, our fifth wrong view of our heavenly father is that we have a dictatorial father. This is a father who is always bossing me around, always demanding and taking things from me. Some of you grew up with a father who was extremely strict, he was all law, no relationship. And he always had expectations upon you. And oftentimes those expectations were unrealistic or too high. And uh, he had a short fuse and he would snap at the moment, similar to the Greek goddess Zeus. And this was the type of father you grew up with. But you see, our God is not like that. Our heavenly father is not like that. We have a heavenly father who is a giving and patient father we have a heavenly father who is giving and patient. You see, in almost all of the religions, there is a God who demands gifts from his people, but our father is a giving God. How do you know that? In John chapter 3, verse 16, probably one of the most popular verses, it says, "'For God so loved the world that he gave his only son.'" You see, for he gave his only son, for he gave his only son. Every other God is trying to demand uh, gifts from you and our God is giving gifts to you so that you would accept him and receive him into a relationship with him through his son. And out of gratitude for that giving God that we serve, I came across this poem that I felt was so beautifully pictured in its words of what type of gratitude we could have. It says this, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I can give him my heart. This is what he's asking from us for the great giving God that we have is that he's asking for our heart that we would receive him because he's not a dictatorial father. He is a personal real father. One more verse we're gonna turn to as we wrap up. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, not only is our God a giving God, but he is a very, very patient God. You see the backstory here in Exodus chapter 34 is Israel has just come out of 400 years of slavery, been abused. God redeems them by raising up Moses to pull them out of this slavery. He exercises his authority and his power over the Egyptians. And when he says, Do you want me to govern you and oversee you? They say yes. And so when Moses is penning down the, the law for them to follow, they begin to worship other gods and do massively inappropriate things. And God disciplines for them, but this is what he says about them. Verse five The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Father. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father and on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." I don't know about you, but if my kids, I just pulled them out of slavery and this is how they thanked me. I don't know if I would be defined by being slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Those characteristics would be very, very far from my lips or displayed in my personality. But this is who our heavenly father is. He is patient, he is kind, And he understands that transformation doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a process and over a lifetime. And so this is who our heavenly father is. And so the question is, is what is our heavenly father like? We know that our heavenly father, that we have one, that our father seeks after us. Our father makes time for us. Our father lovingly corrects us that our father is generous and patient with us. Therefore, we can trust him with our life and we can believe in him with all of our possessions. And as I close here, I wanna just leave you with this. For those of you who are men in this room, who are grandfathers and fathers, there is a large responsibility and an important role, probably one of the most important roles that you will have is to steward that title, father because our heavenly father has shared that title with you and with me. And oftentimes how our kids or our grandkids view their heavenly father is by how they view us. And I realize that we are not perfect and we are far from it. And I make a lot of mistakes as a dad, but we need to be reminded of who our heavenly father is and come to the tables of communion in a moment and to confess those sins and get right with him, knowing that he is steadfast love, he is patient, he is gracious, and he is merciful, and may that motivate the change in your life. Let's pray.